You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, if you would turn with me in your Bibles this morning to the book of Acts. We're looking together at chapter 21 and reading 27 through 36. You'll find this on page 931 of the Pew Bible. And we're going to read together Acts 21, verses 27 through 36. Hear the word of God. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing and some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, Away with him! Well, the book of Acts, as you probably know, is the second of a two-volume work penned by Luke, the physician. In volume one, the gospel of Luke, he dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. And in this volume, volume two, the book of Acts, he deals with all that Jesus continues to do and teach. He does this now by his word and spirit through the agency of the church, the ministry of the gospel. Before ascending to heaven, Jesus made this declaration to his apostles. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And so the rest of the book of Acts is simply the unfolding of that specific declaration. You'll be my witnesses. So we're now ready to consider Paul's final journey as a witness to the end of the earth. As far as the early church was concerned, Rome was on the far end of the known world, the ends of the earth. 
Paul is in Jerusalem. He's poised to make his final trip in an unexpected way. And as I said, the remainder of this book will be taken up with his journey to Rome. And it will conclude, the book will conclude with his testimony there, especially in the household of Caesar, the emperor. But currently he is fulfilling a vow of purification for the sake of peace in Jerusalem. At the end of the process, he was spotted by some Jews from Asia Minor. That's where he had spent many years, three of them in Ephesus, and was well known to the diaspora Jews, which is what they were called. And these Jews were exceedingly strict in their adherence to the Mosaic law, zealous. And they, <clears throat> they opposed him in Ephesus, and they're now doing the same thing in Jerusalem. And it was the Feast of Pentecost, of course, the Romans were on alert. Tensions were high, nerves were frayed, and the people were already on edge. And these Jews used that to their advantage to begin to stir up the crowd against the Apostle Paul. Rumors flew, accusations were made, he was charged with various crimes, Specifically, I quote, they spoke against the people. He spoke against the people, the law, and the temple. He desecrated the holy place. And even though none of it was true, these were very serious charges. The seriousness, I think, is highlighted by that warning stone in the temple court itself. You walk up to the temple court, and this is the stone that you would see. It says... In both Greek and Latin, these stones warned that any foreigner proceeding beyond that point did so on pain of death. No Gentile was permitted to advance beyond that outer court on pain of death. And any Jew that's found aiding and abetting a Gentile in defiling the temple would die. And thus these false rumors stirred up the city and Paul was dragged out of the temple into the Gentile court. And as the temple gates slammed shut, the Jews began beating the apostle. And I think it's worth noting that this is the last time we encounter the temple in the book of Acts. The last time. And some say, and I tend to agree with them, that the closing of its gates here was symbolic of the temple being closed forever. That final rejection of God's apostolic messenger signaled a death knell. And perhaps Luke understood that the temple had finally ceased to fulfill its noble role as the center of worship. Casting out a messenger of God with a message from God sealed its doom. And it was now ripe for that terrible destruction predicted by our Lord himself, who said, The days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So when the Roman commander or the tribune heard about the uproar, of course, he ran to the scene as a keeper of the peace. There were a thousand soldiers under his command, and he was responsible for maintaining calm in the city. So he took both soldiers and centurions, which meant at least 200 men, probably more, but at least 200. And upon their arrival, of course, the crowd stopped beating Paul and quieted down. 
Seeing the apostle at the center of the riot, the tribune had him arrested and bound. And it was at that very moment that the prophecy of Agabus was fulfilled. He took Paul's belt, you remember, and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And so confusing were the reports, and so violent was the crowd that the tribune couldn't make heads or tails of what was going on. So the soldiers hoisted Paul up the stairs amid what seemed like pandemonium, and the mob of the people followed, crying out, notice, away with him. Does it sound familiar? The very same words used against Jesus himself. John writes, it was about the sixth hour. Pilate said to the Jews, behold your king. And they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests, the leaders of the Jews answered, we have no king but Caesar. There he was, the Lord of glory, and they treated him like the scum of the earth. They hated him. They called him Beelzebul, the god of flies, the chief of devils. And that same hate and hostility was hurled, being hurled at Jesus is now being hurled at Paul. And should we be surprised? Jesus himself taught us a disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. Whatever abuse that Christ himself received and endured, his disciples can expect the same. We who will be made like him in glory must be made like him in suffering. That's the expectation. Paul says we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. And so what I understand this text to be showing us is simply another illustration of that ancient prophetic promise of the woman's seed. Do you remember? It's so well known. Genesis 3.15. Every, every Sunday school child probably knows this by heart. Or should. God said to the devil, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And that's how the curse upon Satan would be carried out historically. He shall bruise your head, Satan, and you shall bruise his heel. And everything from that point forward is simply the outworking of that original promise. And as time moved on, the promise gained clarity and the details came into greater focus and that word enmity, it meant the woman and her seed would view the devil as the enemy. Huge transition. There would be a complete reversal of the believer's disposition. There would be a new birth. So that while unregenerate man would remain the enemy of God, regenerate man would be the enemy of the devil. And so you can tell a lot about a person 
by the friends he keeps and the enemies he opposes. According to that, in that original promise, the divine initiative is stressed. God said, I will put enmity between them. In other words, a new birth is of God alone. And only his Holy Spirit can change the heart. Had God not taken the initiative, there would be no change of heart, no new birth, no salvation. The sovereignty of God in salvation is stressed. And the very first promise and Jesus comes along and he says, it's the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. You and I can't do anything in our own strength. So God himself, we're told, would overturn man's friendship with the devil as he introduces enmity. And Satan's alliance with man would crumble. His mastery over mankind would be destroyed, at least some of us. Renewed in our love for God, true believers would now hate the devil. And that's why we see that history has become this struggle between good and evil, between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. The Apostle John highlights this great conflict in what he says about Cain. Elder Gilliland read it earlier. You can turn there if you want. 1 John 3. He says, and I quote, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder his brother? It says, because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Now there we have the first illustration in the Bible of this God-ordained enmity between the seeds. And that Greek word murdered in 1 John 3 is literally butchered. It's a very strong word. To slit the throat is what it means. The same word is used by John in Revelation 5, 6 when he describes the Lord Jesus himself. Do you remember what he said? I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain as though it had been butchered, as though its throat had been slit. And yet what so reflects the devil in this account in 1 John 3 is not the manner of Cain's crime, but it is the motive. Cain butchered Abel because his deeds were evil and his brothers righteous. He couldn't endure Abel's true piety and evangelical goodness. Darkness can't endure the light. The light of godliness condemns the darkness. Do you see? Jesus said, everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. You don't have to say a word. The wicked are offended by the believer's conformity to Christ because Satan detests the Lord. He hates and he abhors the Lamb of God. And that same satanic disposition animates all the followers of the devil. Some it's more subtle, some it's more blatant, but rest assured it animates them. 
And Cain's hatred of his brother Abel is illustrated in the diabolical spirit of the devil's seed. And John tells us that the spirit of Cain still lives and breathes in the unbelieving world. Don't be surprised, brothers and sisters, that the world hates you. Don't be surprised. The world's irrational hatred of Christians should not surprise us. The believer, Paul, is to the world what the brother Abel was to Cain. It's no different. The world hates the Christian because its works are evil and his works are righteous. Christians are taught. Now, we're not all consistent, let's be honest. But we're taught to be peaceful, respectful, honest, obedient people. And one would think that such a person being taught that way would be most welcome in any situation. But they're not. They're persecuted precisely because of their godliness. Paul even tells us and warns us, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Because Cain was of the evil one, he hated and butchered his brother. And so John goes on. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. In those two verses, John lays out the threefold progression of worldly animosity. A threefold progression of worldly animosity. First, at the end of verse 14 in chapter 3 of 1 John, he mentions stage one. Whoever does not love. That's not a positive evil. It's a negation. It's a lack of love. And that's the first stage, and I think it's far more difficult to discern than the others. It's not a sin of commission, it's a sin of omission. You're omitting a duty. And it's not always easy to detect. It's not a definite transgression. It's not a palpable violation of God's law. It's not doing something wrong. It's just not doing anything at all. It's a lack of love. It's avoiding, it's ignoring, it's shunning. It's very subtle and it's very insidious. And it's so easy for a person to enter into this first stage of worldly animosity. You know what I'm talking about. Your feelings get hurt. You feel offended. And that cold, unfeeling, unsympathetic spirit begins to weasel its way into your soul. So we have to beware if and when this ever happens to us because it's that chilling indifference. And if this kind of coldness and indifference begins to grow, John says that it's a sign of death. That's stage one. Stage two, verse 15, we discover it. He says, everyone who hates his brother. And here he tells us that a lack of love will eventually turn into hate. Do you see the progression between 14 and 15? It's a descending spiral. The heart of man was made to be filled. And originally it was filled with love. But of course, sin extinguished all true love in the heart and left the soul 
barren. And that void in the soul left by a lack of love will not remain empty. The heart has to be filled with something, so it becomes a vessel of hate. It cannot be characterized for any extended period by a mere negation, lack of love. Inevitably, it will be filled with something proactive, whether that's love or hate, one or the other. Cain's heart was cold, indifferent, and soon filled up with animosity. So before, he could just ignore Abel. That's my brother, but ah, just going to ignore him. But you see, a time came when that was no longer enough. He began to actively hate him. He detested him, and loathing began to fill his heart. Because in so many, the lack of love ferments into the presence of hatred. And that's when the age-old enmity appears and the persecution of Christians begins. That's stage two. Stage one, a lack of love. Stage two, hate. Stage three, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. That hate that filled the void in the heart now finally takes action. It's grown very impatient with being restrained within the soul. And hatred springs into action and is now expressed by intense hostility. Whether or not a crime is committed physically, murder takes place, right? You begin to mull over in your mind, striking, wounding, murdering. And our Lord teaches us that that's as well murder as anything else. Everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to the judgment. So a lack of love leads to being filled with hate, which inevitably leads to murder. And I think Cain might have benefited by refusing to let love die in his heart. And yet he fell prey to the threefold progression and it did not end well for him. Solomon teaches us in Proverbs 29.10, Bloodthirsty men hate one who is blameless and seek the life of the upright. And there is a great noble army of martyrs that bear witness to that truth. Which of God's prophets did not the Jewish fathers persecute? Which of Christ's apostles did not the unbelieving world abuse? Their sincere godliness is the only reason given for such unjust hatred. They were too good. My friends, beware of slipping into cold indifference. Beware of leaving your heart vulnerable to hate. This can happen in a marriage. This can happen among friends. It can happen within a local church. After all, we're a bunch of sinners being gathered together in the same room. And we allow those petty slights to extinguish the love that was planted by the Spirit, right? Our feelings get hurt. And as the heart grows cold, the vacuum is inevitably filled with something far worse. 
And this progression, I think, is another way of expressing the one, the same kind of progression found in Psalm 1. First, one walks in the counsel of the wicked. His natural following of his heart. Oprah says, follow your heart. Bad news. Then with experience, one stands in the way of sinners. I like this. It's pleasurable for a season. Finally, with habits formed, one becomes fully ensconced and he sits in the seat of scoffers. You're walking, you stand, you sit. It's a progression, either fast or gradual, into a settled state of evil. And that's what we see in John 3, a lack of love, a hateful heart, murder. But I want you to notice the positive declaration right in the middle of John's teaching. Verse 14, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. And what a tremendous declaration that is from one ultimate state into another. These two states are separated by a gulf, which for now can be traversed by conversion. But a day will come when there will be no transit from one to the other. Death into life. The one side is the land of death, a country of graves, a place of joyless pain. And the opposite side is the land of life, a region of light, of never-ending pleasure. And brotherly love, it's not the cause of this great translation from one to the other, but it is the proof. Love is one of the tests of life. Has my heart changed? Am I actually born again? Do I love the brethren? You see, when a person receives Christ and is filled with the Spirit, his or her relationships are affected. There may be no greater test of this transition from death to life than this. Surely it's not the least. The lack of love, that cold indifference, is evidence that the great transaction or transition has not taken place. But the presence of true love proves the implantation of the seed of God. It implies a change of covenant heads. It implies a change of personal allegiances. Adam represented his posterity. Christ represents those given to him by the Father. And love infers that you have passed from a state of condemnation to a state of justification. What wonderful evidence is that? It proves that you've passed from spiritual death into spiritual life. And such love shows that you've been liberated from the power of sin and the dominion of Satan and taken into the family of God. And it grows out of the seed that he implanted in your soul. And there is this supernatural warmth kindled in your hearts for one another. You have friends in this congregation with whom you'd never be friends outside of Christ. I guarantee it. But isn't it wonderful? We're together so different. We have this sympathy with one another and this concern for one another and a delight in each other. So ask yourself, do I love the fellow members in this church? 
not just the ones that I get along with so well, but every single member. Am I at odds with some of the people with whom I partake of the supper? There's no option there. I'm obligated to love my brother and sister. What does all this prove about me, spiritually speaking? Love is the evidence of regeneration, of passing from death to life, because we're told and taught that God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. It's the work of his spirit to pour that love into your heart. And that love so permeates, it's like an expensive ointment that perfumes the soul. And a growing sense of his love for us often motivates us to love one another. So let's often ponder the great love with which the everlasting God has loved us. He says through John, in this is love, not that we've loved God. Nobody loves God. But that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. He loved us first. He loved us when we had no love for him at all. He loved us when we were guilty and corrupt and miserable and loathsome. You can ask yourself, am I not undeserving and ill-deserving and polluted and unclean? Am I not that way? And yet God sent his son Jesus, the eternal son, to suffer and die under the curse of his own law to save such as me? And as he did so, he bore my sins in his own body on the tree to satisfy those demands of God's justice. And isn't that the greatest demonstration of love this world has ever seen? Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. The example of God should motivate us. It should compel us to love each other. I think we should be mindful of the cosmic antithesis between life and love on the one hand and death and hate on the other. Be mindful of that. God made this plain when he announced the gospel publicly for the first time. That enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the devil has characterized history. And because the devil's hatred cannot hurt God in any way, he seeks to destroy, destroy God's image bearers. That's why. The unbelieving world hates the believing church. We try to love them and pray for them and work to spread the gospel among them, but don't be surprised when they hate you. John says, I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus in Revelation 17, 6. And the devilish malice of the world against the church is deep, and it's intense, and it's tragic. And nothing but the gospel of Jesus Christ can ever kill this principle of hate. Everything else simply chains and restrains man's sinful animosity, 12 steps, or this thing, or that. And even when it seems as if the hatred has somehow been subdued, it retains its power and it waits only for the restraints to be removed, and it will strike with a vengeance. And the sad thing is, the remnants of that are in my heart. And it grieves me when I see those things rising up. 
Depending on one's relationship to God or the devil, one will behave accordingly. As we lack love, as we harbor hate, as we imagine harming somebody else, we aid the devil's cause. And on that day, by contrast, if we love the brethren, if we do good to all, if we fulfill the law of love, our king will commend us as one of the faithful servants. And he'll say, truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Jesus will say that. So let's strive, you and I, to stamp out and never make room for secret anger or hidden hate. Satan and his minions know how to take advantage of that. Paul warns, be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. If we drift into indifference, if we give way to hate, if we make way for murder, the devil is ready to tempt us in any one of those stages. If we yield to his temptation, he accuses and tortures the conscience, and that makes life even more difficult than it is. Let's be intent on loving our brethren and showing the fruit of regeneration because the Spirit pours his love into the believing soul and we strengthen it in the exercise of duty. It's the habit. That's the habit of loving one another. It's a good habit. It's a godly habit. And it is confirmed and it's increased as we exercise it. I'm going to conclude as a brand new Christian. I rented a house with two acquaintances, one of which was extremely annoying. I had no idea when I agreed to sign up for that. And to be honest with you, it became increasingly difficult for me to live under the same roof with this guy. Well, there was another friend, and I was a new Christian, mind you. Another friend advised me to pray for this guy because he said, and I'll never forget it, it's hard to hate someone for whom you pray. That was novel. So reluctantly, and believe me, it was very reluctantly, I took his advice and I started praying for this friend. It didn't take long for my view to change. And as I began to focus on his good qualities and thank God for the things that were good, the bad ones became less troublesome. And I think that's a very small example of how taking action strengthens brotherly love. Being somewhat proactive. True brotherly love is unnatural to fallen man. By nature, we're selfish, but grace changes the heart and infuses new infections into the soul and enables us to love one another with the love of Christ. May that happen here and in everywhere else where the name of Christ is named. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love, which is pure, eternal, unwavering, never-ending. And we thank you that in the fullness of time, you just demonstrated it supremely in the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. If we ever doubt 
your love for us, help us to look at the cross and see its greatest demonstration. And in so doing, help us to love one another, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.